0: The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast.
1: Hare Krishna, everyone. You are listening to the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world, the Late Morning Program, with your host, Nam Ras. I'm here. I'm very honored to have His Holiness. Krishna Shetra Swami Maharaj, Maharaj, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having me with you. You're, uh, I like, I like the opening. Uh, it's a very.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's gotta make it a little exciting. Um,
0: yeah, but no, beyond that, I wanted to say, I think uh, you're, you're doing an important service um, with this podcast, getting yeah, literally airing ideas uh, related with Krishna consciousness. Very, very valuable.
1: Thank you so much, Maharaj. That, mean, that means a lot uh, that you say that. So, uh, Maharaj, maybe we can start off by um, talking about how you got in contact with Krishna consciousness uh, and maybe a little bit about your background.
0: Okay, let's see. Um I was a student at the University of California in Berkeley, um, and it was 1969. Uh, It was pretty much the height of the Vietnam War, and it was, um, especially in Berkeley, a time of great student unrest, as the media would call it. In the midst of mm, this uh, unrest atmosphere uh, was to be seen and to be heard, the Hare Krishna devotees at the corner of uh, the main entrance to the university on the south side, uh, chanting Hare Krishna several hours every day and distributing their magazines and, uh, I guess, some prasadam as well. So, I, I was struck by uh, this uh, scene of robed, smiling devotees and was, was struck. I, I felt uh, seeing them every day as I would go by uh, going to classes that uh, there's something genuine about them uh, and there's something otherworldly about them. And someday I think I should check them out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But not just now because I'm a student and I'm trying to, you know, make it in the student world. I was... um, I was in the beginning stages of studying architecture in the Department of uh, the School of Environmental Design. <laughs> um, after two years of rather unfulfilling experience as a student, uh, I found it possible to drop out of school without uh, fearing being drafted to go to Vietnam um, because of a new arrangement that had uh, been made, uh, a new law for drafting that is some technical points, but essentially I could know that there was no danger that I would be drafted. A new... They called it lottery system, um, and so I did drop out. I felt I need to I need to get a broader experience of the world, um, to get a better sense of what I'm actually doing, and maybe who I actually am. And I also had a sense I did not know the well. I don't think I knew the word guru at that time, but I had a sense that this is what I need. I need to take guidance from a, um, a spiritual person, someone who is exalted spiritually. Uh, I don't think I was even using the word spiritually at the time, but I felt that there's some kind of need like this. And I was, um, I was inclined to analyze sometimes what was my problem. Uh, I felt I have a problem, <laughs> and I need to solve this problem. And I didn't understand that actually everybody has this problem. It's called conditioned life. But what I recognized was that deep down inside the problem was fear. Uh, fear of death, and so on. And um, I, I wondered about this. How does one overcome? And uh, being the young, not very bright person that I was, I thought, well, maybe if I would kind of face the fear by doing something fearful, maybe I could overcome it. And as these sort of thoughts were going through my mind, I saw an advertisement on campus um, for a quick course in skydiving. (laughs) 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 And it was only $35. And I thought, that's it. I am so scared of heights of the idea I mean, just the idea of jumping out of an airplane. Oh, that's really something. So I thought, yeah, this is what I should do. So I signed up and I went uh, to the Oakland airport and uh, was a small group of us students, nice instructor. He gave us instructions um, and a little bit of practice, doing certain things um, over a period of, I guess it was, was it two hours or four hours? Anyway, two or four hours, we got the training, and then we were bundled into a little plane uh, with our parachutes, and up we went, and one after another, out we went, and we uh, in my case (laughs) now this is going way back this is before i don't know what they call them now they have these beautiful um sort of long uh stretching rectangular parachutes but in those days they were round right they were round and they had a hole in the top but when my parachute opened There was no hole. Nor did I know that there should be a hole because our instructor, I swear, he didn't tell us. But he did tell us as soon as the parachute opens, you gotta check to make sure it's open nicely because if it's not, you have to uh, unbuckle it, let it go and pull your emergency uh, parachute. But as far as I knew, it was fine. It was open, fine. So I came happily sailing down um, and landed and uh, didn't hurt myself. But several people came running toward me asking, are you okay? I said, yeah, I think I'm okay. They said, because your parachute was not open all, all the way. There was a line wrapped around the top. There was a bunch on the top, so the parachute was effectively about 90%. I'm getting off the subject, but I'm sorry. (laughs) The point is I wanted to overcome fear, and this didn't work. (laughs) 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 It didn't work. Um, Anyway, dropped out of school. went to Europe, hitchhiked around Europe for a while, um, got cheated out of all my money by my own foolishness, got a job um, for five months, simple job in a big factory, and then decided it's time to travel again. Where shall I go? What shall I do? What's my life for? Um, Actually, I thought maybe, I wonder if there are any of those Hare Krishnas here in Europe. Because now, I really felt it. now would be the time to check them out right? and see what they're about. And my idea was, if I can find them, I'll stay with them for, mm, you know, two, three weeks. And that way I can really, you know, that'll clear out my head. <laughs> and I'll be able to understand what I should do from there. And I also thought, well, if there's Hare Krishnas in Europe, where would they be? Probably in a place similar to Berkeley. Berkeley is a big, it's a university city, university town. How about Heidelberg in Germany? Maybe they're in Heidelberg. Okay, let's go to Heidelberg, maybe. Because this there's no internet at this time. There's no, you know. Right.
1: No directory uh, or anything.
0: There's no computers. There's nothing. <laughs> um, so how do you find out? You go yourself. So I went and I walked into the old part of town. And the first thing I saw was Pritha Prabhu and Shivananda Prabhu chanting Hare Krishna. Wow. And uh, the next day I joined them. And then two weeks later, uh, the news came that Srila Prabhupada was coming to Paris. By that time I'd heard a lot about Srila Prabhupada from the devotees. And although I was saying I'll stay for two weeks and then I'll leave, by this time I was wearing a dhoti. I was shaved up, wearing tilak, I was on the street selling magazines and chanting Hare Krishna. So the idea of leaving right away didn't. And then Prabhupada was coming. Have to meet Prabhupada, okay. So we all went. And um, on the way to Paris I was asked, would I like to be initiated? And I said, Sure. <laughs> <laughs> And when I met Prabhupada, when I saw Prabhupada, I thought, yes, that's him. That's the person I was looking for. That's the um the higher person, the person of higher consciousness. That's the guru.
1: Wow. And then you and then you stayed on and what what were your, kind of your services in the in the in the beginning?
0: Um, I was, uh, you know, rank and file brahmachari, um, distributing books. Um, initially, and that's one thing that I've I, I wondered about soon after um, joining, and in, in the very first several weeks or months, we had um, Harinam every day. Actually, I was in Stuttgart. They sent me to a little, what was called a preaching center in Stuttgart. A few brahmacharis. And we would go out to the main street, uh, shopping street every day, and do Harinam up and down the street. We would stop for some time and distribute magazines. Back to Godhead. And uh, then we again, we would sing for a while and then we distribute all, of course, in Dodi's and Tilak and so on. And no, we didn't have any ladies uh, there in Stuttgart. And uh, and then sometime after that uh, came the idea of just distributing books. Right. And uh, for me, this was... Not the same. I felt that the two belonged together. Um, That people should see who we are, what we do, and then out of their curiosity, they should, you know, take a book or a magazine or something. And then the next step, you know, was uh, distributing books wearing Western clothes rather than our traditional dress and so on. Right. Um, and I felt like, hmm, maybe we're get, getting, is this, I didn't know the expression at the time, but is this mission drift? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, okay, those were early days. Um, then, yeah, more book distribution. I was uh, asked to go to, Uh, Amsterdam, after some months, um, I had one very mm, rare qualification at the time mm, for going to Amsterdam. I had a driver's license.
1: (laughs) That was rare back then, huh?
0: It was. It was. Wow. So they had a vehicle and I had a driver's license and they needed somebody in Amsterdam uh, to drive. and Yeah, so I was the temple driver. Eventually, I was also involved in some of the deity worship there. And um, yeah, and also book distribution, uh, distributing uh, Dutch ishopanishads, I remember, and going all over. Holland and some of Belgium, including, you know, some of the smallest villages and so on. Um, traveling Sangerton And the Amsterdam Temple um, was a at that time Betanenstraat. It was a converted garage. Um Garage meaning a larger space, like for repairing um, cars. It was converted into a temple, and we we had one water source. No, we had two. We had a shower, and then separate from the shower, in the main sort of open area, we had two. Like utility-sized sinks and one faucet, and that was for all purposes, uh, including kitchen. Uh, <laughs> wow! <laughs> and the Brahmacharya Ashram was an attic uh, with a leaning roof where only somebody my short my short size could stand up fully on the highest part; otherwise. You know, it was crouching down sort of thing. Yeah, that was Amsterdam. Um, I spent some time in Denmark, uh, similar, uh, traveling around, distributing books, and then eventually distributing long play records. Now, many who may be watching, listening to this won't even know what that is. Right. <laughs> um, but we had kirtan, we, uh, recordings of kirtan, and we had uh, recordings of Śrīla Prabhupāda singing bhajāns. So, yeah, and that was all, you know, mainly for raising funds. At one point, uh, myself and Vaidyanath Prabhu, who is the older brother of Satyanandana Swami Maharaj, um, were picked up by the police in Denmark. And after a night, maybe two nights, I don't remember, in prison we were um, ushered out of the country. So, like that. Uh, then, book distribution in, in Germany. At uh, at one point, I kind of signed up for what was called the East Program. Uh, this was Harikesh Swami especially uh, initiating under Srila Prabhupada's direction to uh, bring Prabhupada's mission to the countries of East Europe uh, behind uh, the so-called Iron Curtain. And so um, when this started up, I was very enthusiastic, I can say, uh, to take part. And I was given opportunity initially in Berlin uh, to live in West Berlin and make regular visits to a small group of very small community of devotees in East Berlin going through Checkpoint Charlie, um, yeah, two, three times a week. And that that led in 1978, I think it was, I started going um, with other devotees to other countries, uh, all of them including where I am now, Poland, and um, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, which is now Czech Republic and Slovakia, and um, Romania, Bulgaria, and what we now call former Yugoslavia. I also made a couple of visits to uh, former Soviet Union to Russia. And... uh, through Ukraine also. Um, Yeah, so uh, then, well, 1978 then I was asked to be assistant secretary for Harikesh Swami, and so for a year and a half I traveled with him. That was quite intense travel uh, up and down Europe, but also India, also Middle East, and um, at that time, he was writing a book, so I was his typist, and there was no computer, so it was, you type a page, and if there's something that needs correcting, you retype the entire page. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so I typed that book of his about Varna um, altogether, maybe five times. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, also, at that time, I became engaged in uh, worship of uh, The uh, We received, that is, Harike Swami received a small murti as a gift of Dave And uh, he then put me in charge to do daily worship as we traveled. And he wanted me to do a nice, say, sort of comprehensive worship in the morning, uh, which meant I had to learn the process. And that was soon after the so-called white book came out, the deity worship book.
1: The Archana Padati? Is that
0: the one? Um, yes, this was Archana Padati, uh, which was a translation of, I believe, more than one Padatis from uh, different Gaudiya Right. So that started getting me into the ritual side of, of deity worship and got me into. Yeah, kind of wondering what it is, what it what we're doing, why we're doing it.
1: Right. Before we get before we get into that, Marge, because I want to touch on that, the the DD worship (laughs) side. Um, what was your experience after Srila Prabhupada's disappearance? I like to ask this of all my guests who, you know, who are kind of older and who have who are Prabhupada disciples and then who lived who kind of survived so to say through the <laughs> through the 80s yes. and through the when Srila Prabhupada um, left this world and all. So what was your experience there?
0: My experience was again as sort of a rank and file uh, devotee I felt that uh, we were we were soldiers in the field and um, we were being prepared. I can say that I felt that Srila Prabhupada was preparing me for his departure from day one um, because from my meeting him in Paris, he would say that, um, I think it was kind of every time that I met him, it was over five years, each summer we would meet him in Paris Paris, in London, in Germany, um, and he would make some comment like, I'm not going to be here, you know, that much longer, um, and indeed in my initiation, the lecture he gave, he spoke very explicitly on that point, um, he gave this example of um, learning to fly an airplane right. that. Uh, the instructor accompanies the student for some time and when this instructor feels the student is ready uh, he sends the student up in the plane to fly solo and they keep connected by radio right. so he gave that example to say we have to you have to prepare yourselves uh, because at the end of life you have to fly solo Or in this case, it was also understood, Prabhupada. You know, is um, is elderly. We don't know how long he'll be with us. Although there was also a sense he'll kind of always be with us. Uh-huh. But uh, then, as the months were approaching, that the news was coming that Srila Prabhupada is seriously ill. Um, it was just uh i felt a kind of preparation that it was something to be reckoned with for all of us and i think i think we didn't have enough wherewithal to be asking all the questions uh, that we should have been asking of him specifically uh, you know especially about succession uh yeah, no. <laughs> uh, to get more um, unambiguous, shall we say, statements. Although it can be argued that Prabhupada was never ambiguous. But anyway, that's another subject. Right. So I felt that when he actually departed, I was in Poland at the time. We got the news. Um, I felt, Hare Krishna. Okay. Um, now we continue. Uh, we have to take shelter of instructions. We have to take shelter of his books, of his guidance of uh, the guidance of um, of our senior devotees, and so on. Right. And I say this in contrast uh, to an experience. So... Honestly speaking, emotionally, I was not like all torn up because I felt we were being prepared for this. In contrast, I can say, um, it's maybe another chapter of this, but some years later, I came uh, to become, a, I can say, a very close friend of His Holiness Tamal Krishna Goswami. And then when he left, as we all know, it was completely sudden. Yeah. Um, you know, I was I was seriously torn apart. There was no there was no warning, you know, there was no preparation. So but well, when Prabhupada left, the the motto in Germany was business more than usual. Now, in retrospect, I understand there's a problem with that because um although Krishna tells Arjuna uh, that there's no need to lament for the departed soul. There is need for grieving. Uh, if we don't grieve uh, for those who are dear to us, um, what to speak of our most dear uh, spiritual master, then something is wrong with us. Or um it becomes wrong with us because we haven't worked it through. So, but in any case, uh, life did sort of go on in that spirit of uh, business more than usual. And maybe that was necessary at the time to keep us kind of um, cohesive. Right. But perhaps part of your question is, why did I, why am I still, you know, with the society when so many left?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the the, 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 the leaving of Srila Prabhupada, and then as well as what happened afterward, you know, in the next right. 10, 10 years or whatever it was. So,
0: yeah. Um, I didn't feel like there was any alternative but to keep going. And I felt like whatever faults are there, um, I did have some faith that Krishna would straighten things out in course of time, Um, but that I should, you know, kind of stay with the ship. Um, And I can also say, um, in all honesty, I was under the direction of, of Harikesh Swami at the time, Swami. And and I appreciated very much that, unlike apparently other uh, so-called zonal gurus who were more or less expecting uh, to be treated by their godbrothers as, um, as their gurus, uh, he did not do that. He was. I. I felt he was very careful about that. Not. He understood. <laughs> there's. There's an etiquette here. Um, I mean, you know. Anyway, that's another story. Sometimes he was not. Uh, he. He was. He was tr- struggling himself to, to to do what he thought he had to do in the position that he thought he had. So. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, really nothing I feel to criticize there. But uh, he was he was always kind to me, and uh, encouraging me in my service. And he gave me I would say a lot of independence. Uh, and then, um, because everything did hit the fan, was it 1986? Um, he took the initiative from his side within his zone uh, to sort of designate who he felt ought to take on the responsibility of accepting disciples. And uh, I mean, this was this is a little difficult for anyone to understand today, but um, in those days, I think the mood was just, you know, just do it. It was something like in Prabhupada's time in that um, Prabhupada would not wait until someone had qualification before he was given or she was given a duty. It was more like, here, here's your duty now. You know, it it was being thrown in the deep end sink or swim. So kind of from one day to the next, suddenly I had a rubber stamp on my forehead that said that I'm a guru. And I was a brahmachari. I was just a rank and file brahmachari. But he saw that that was my qualification. (laughs) And uh, bless his heart, he kind of railroaded us, myself and uh, I think it was five others of us in the German Swiss Yatra uh, to be approved by the GBC. So, well, now I had a responsibility. You can't just leave. Um, My initial thought was, well, anyway, I don't have anybody, you know, wanting to be my disciples, so I don't have anything really to worry about. Trouble was, before I knew it, I did have uh, some aspirants. And I decided to take that as um, an arrangement uh, for service that Srila Prabhupada wants me to, as unqualified as I am. I mean, there was no, there was no training, there was no, you know, I mean, you have now to be kama sannyasi. There's a whole program of training, right? this, there's, there's you know, it's a whole thing.
1: I do want to talk about that afterward as well.
0: Yeah. So, but there was nothing from one day to the next. I mean, literally. Now you're a guru, Hare Krishna. Good luck.
1: <laughs> That's early. <laughs>
0: I felt, okay, this is now my duty and I have to just do it somehow or other. Right. And so um, I'm still learning.
1: Amazing. And yeah, that's very fascinating because most of the, most of the, I mean, there wasn't probably a, what was the, procedure at that time to become a, a guru it wasn't like what it is now i think it was no very- not at
0: all there was uh there was no system it nice. was um it was simply that uh, the names were given uh to the gbc and the gbc plenary i think they had some short discussion actually what happened in my case i found out later um, I had written a letter to, when I heard I was being recommended as a guru. I wrote a letter to the GVC chairman um, saying, "You know, <laughs> I, you know, count me out. I'm not. This is uh, this is not going to work." And uh, the letter was delivered. And the GBC chairman, when the discussion came up, the GBC chairman, I found out later, read the letter and he he raised the question to Harikesh Swami. He said, but what about this letter? And Harikesh simply dismissed it. He said, oh, he's just being humble. And that was the end of the discussion. And then there was a vote and that was it. Wow. Talk about rubber stamping, huh? (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. And so you have you have been initiating like since that time since the eight mid eighties?
0: Since 1987.
1: Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. I did not know that. Like I consider myself a bit of an ISCON history buff, but I did not know that. That's fascinating. <laughs> I love that. Um yeah. let's go- there's let's go. There's
0: yeah. a few of us, as I said, there were right. uh five or six of us.
1: Okay, and they were appointed by Harikesh Swami yeah. at the time.
0: Yeah, basically. It just to manage
1: amazing. the the yatra, is that what it was?
0: No, it wasn't even with that sense that we should be, be managers. Um, it was really that we should be gurus. I see. And his point, uh, when he first brought it up to us, was that you have this responsibility you are preaching you are making devotees now you should be taking responsibility for them for their spiritual lives and you know that made sense yeah <laughs> right. we didn't we didn't have anything to counter that with
1: going back to the ritual part um mm-hmm. i understand that you were one of the first Uh, part, you you were taking part in the Iskandidi worship ministry. How did that whole thing come about? And also you spent time in Radha Raman temple, learning things like that. I'd like to hear about that.
0: Okay. Um, Well, it kind of goes back to, it was 1996. We had the uh, Prabhupada centennial. And, um, It was Lokanath Swami, I believe, who was the main organizer. And there were different, uh, what what were called petals, and there were nine petals. And one of the petals was spiritual standards. And somehow we should all be focusing on these different uh, branches and developing them and so on. And somehow I became... uh, Involved, maybe I was supposed to be director, I don't even remember, of uh, quote unquote raising spiritual standards. And I was involved in the deity worship uh, in Germany in Singachalam at that time, worship of Nrsingadev. And I got kind of curious. I thought, I wonder what are the standards that devotees are keeping around the world. Right. Uh, and I put together a questionnaire. And again, this was before computers. And uh, it was really hard to do this. I wanted to do a survey. Um, and I did. I mean, as best I could. I think ultimately we got I don't think we got more than 40 responses. Uh, but somehow I got involved with that. And then, sort of tied in with that, um, I was sort of hooked into discussions initially about a revised deity worship manual. Because it was decided that the archana Padati was um, leaving something to be desired in various ways right. and initially banaswami maharaj was um given requested to compile materials which he did uh, he had been learning sanskrit uh, sort of self-taught and he was compiling many things, uh, not only from the Hari Bhakti but from other sources. And um, somehow it fell upon me at one point to sort through these piles of materials that he had compiled and try to bring it together into a cohesive book. So I, I was spending... Uh, some months each year in Mayapur uh, with Bhaktivedya Purnaswami and the Gurukul. Um, and he and myself and sometimes we consulted also um, with the twins, Janani Vas Prabhu and Pank- the late Pankajangri Prabhu. Right. And uh, there was um, Atmatatva Prabhu And Jaipataka Swami, I believe, was also, yes, we consulted him sometimes. And uh, eventually we put together this book, which came to be called the Pancharatra Pradipa. And in the course of um, putting that book together, I was feeling um, some frustration in not Myself knowing even a minimal Sanskrit uh, that would have helped to do a proper job. I was completely dependent on Banu Swami, who was, uh, you know, he was quite competent and he was helpful, but I was feeling some lack. uh, That, you know, this is. Whoops.
1: You're still there, Maharaj.
0: We just blacked out for a minute. Are we okay now? We're okay, yeah. All right. Um, so, in those days, uh, I was also meeting Ridayananda Goswami, Ridayananda Das Goswami Maharaj, who at that time, uh, this is early 1990s Uh, at that time he had ventured to go back to university he was studying sanskrit at harvard university and whoops i can still hear you okay It's going in and out. I don't know if that is my connection.
1: I think the the video is going in and out, but the audio has not uh, cut at all. So we're good there. Uh
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, what should we do?
1: Um, We can just continue, Maraj. This is fine. I can still hear you.
0: I should continue? Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Anyway, so, Rida Raj said, you wanna learn Sanskrit, why don't you go back to school? He knew I was, uh, I had been a student in the university. Why don't you go back to school? And in this way, you'll learn Sanskrit and you'll get credit for it in the real world, as he put it. <laughs> um, so as it happened, long story short, he actually convinced me and he, he encouraged me and ultimately he really supported me uh, in many ways uh, to do that. Also, Tamal Krishna Goswami supported me or encouraged me. And uh, so I went back to university. This was 1995. I was 45 years old. I still had to finish my undergraduate degree (laughs) sitting in classrooms with 19, 20-year-olds. But it was okay. It was nice. Uh, I went to University of California again, but I transferred to Santa Barbara because they have a large department of religion there, and uh, Sanskrit. And so um, then a sort of late life, mature student, as they say, uh, academic life, which took me from University of California, Santa Barbara, to graduate theological union in Berkeley where I did a master's degree and then to University of Oxford where I did a second master's degree and then a doctorate. And it's the for the doctorate that I spent time in Vrindavan uh, studying the Radharaman temple.
1: So, so your doctorate um, was your doctorate subject matter was and eventually
0: We're going in and out in and out.
1: Is the audio going in and out, Maraj?
0: Shall I continue?
1: Yes, can you can you hear me though?
0: Um, not quite sure what you are saying now. It's mm. also coming in and out.
1: I think it might be your connection, Maharaj. Oops, but, no. uh, is it better now?
0: Well, at the moment, now I can hear. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I was saying mm. the subject matter of your doctorate thesis was on Radharaman or something related to that.
0: It was on uh, Godya Vaishnav deity worship, um, where the study of Radharaman temple became essentially one of four chapters of uh, the thesis and then eventually the book. Um, the book is published, um, I revised it after the dissertation, and now we have the, the book Attending Krishna's Image. Uh, with a subtitle, Chaitanya Vaishnava Murti Seva as Devotional Truth, <laughs> wow. uh, published by Routledge, but also published by Recensia Press. And what is Recensia Press? It is um, an imprint of Bhaktivedanta Book Trust, which no one knows about because it's only published one book so far. <laughs> Namely mine. Oh, okay. That's a longer story.
1: What would you say to those devotees who um, quote Prabhupada saying, Okay, college is a school is like the slaughterhouse? And you know, there's no need for like pursuing academic uh p- pursuits basically to very high uh like as you have done, as Hudananda Das has done. Did, was there anything like do you felt it could expand your your service or some or did you feel that maybe sometime it was too much of an over like some some devotees might feel it's an over uh, endeavor perhaps so what would you say to that?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, first thing I would say is it's not for everyone. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, second thing I would say is that Srila Prabhupada very much emphasized Varna Shramadharma. Um, and if we think about Varna, um, you know, there's Brahmins Kshatriya Vaisna Shudra, and one of the things that Brahmins do is teach, and in the modern world, if you want to teach, if you want to teach beyond, you know, high school, you have to have a higher degree. It's just the way it works. Um, if... I mean, this is speculative, but if Chaitanya Mahaprabhu were living in the present time, would he have translated his decision to take sannyas at that time into uh, some something else? For example, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but, you know, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu going to university, that sounds kind of silly, uh, but it's kind of in that line that um, if you want to do something in in the academic sphere, in the academic world, um, you really have to become qualified in the same ways that everyone else is. And... Um, I became very much convinced that if we want to st- if our mission is going to strike roots in different cultures around the world, one thing that will be needed uh, is that there be an educated, uh, which is to say, having higher degrees, especially educated persons who are able to represent our tradition within the academy, just as we find every other religious tradition in the world has. There are Roman Catholic scholars of Roman Catholicism. There are um, Islamic Muslim scholars of Islam. Um, and so on and so forth. And they are writing extensively uh, about their traditions from positions of uh, great learning and, and decades of, of study, uh, of deep study of their own traditions. And so I, I felt, why are we not doing this? And I think this is what Prabhupada wanted. Uh, I think it's why he told Prabhu to continue to complete his degree, right. why he told uh, Ravindra Prabhu to complete his degree. He specifically was studying religion. Um, to the slaughterhouse expression, of course, uh, this is a kind of way of speaking to highlight the danger and that's where i would say again it's not for everyone um and uh you know it's not that because one person goes to university therefore everyone has to go (laughs) yeah but you
1: feel that like your service and your outreach to to a, a varying a varied amount of people was kind of heightened because of I think as well as, as if you have a if you're kind of like a decorated scholar in academia then you can reach people who <laughs> otherwise may not be reached otherwise right
0: Yeah I I feel that uh, it's very much uh, expanded my service in right. fact uh, just the number of hours I spend I'm in a way living a dual life because I'm although I'm not um, I'm not in any university as a teacher now. As a professor, I'm um, I'm just writing and some publishing and taking part in conferences. Uh, but it's um, it's kind of been one opportunity after another, especially for uh, especially for writing uh, and publishing about specifically about our. Our tradition. And also, and this goes into another topic, but I got involved um, through the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, got involved in the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, and well, opportunities have opened up there as well.
1: Yeah. Before that, before we talk about that, I wanted to ask you when you go to conferences and when you, even when you were a professor uh, in different universities, uh, did people know that you were a practitioner, like you were a renunciate, or did was it uh, is was it a? Separate? Um,
0: yeah, some yes and some no. I generally my policy has been not to try to hide my identity as a right. devotee, but also not to, uh, not necessarily to advertise it.
1: Right. right.
0: Um especially because in recent years I have been visiting China and I give guest lectures in universities there, and I'm not wearing what I'm wearing now. (laughs) I'll be wearing, you know, Western clothes. Um, But invariably it kind of comes out one way or another um, that I'm somehow a practitioner as well, and for most people that's not a problem. Mm. For most uh, most of the scholars that I deal with, that's not a problem. In fact, um, it can even be a um, a kind of a plus in some respects. Times. It can depend on on the circumstance, on the context. There are many different. What has uh, been your experience
1: teaching that. teaching university in China?
0: In China proper, in what is called mainland China, when you're in Hong Kong, they speak of mainland China. Um, I've not given any. I've not done any regular teaching there. Only uh, sort of single one-off. Sometimes I've done a two or three series uh, seminar or lecture. Um, what's it like? Well, in some ways it's like everywhere else, but um, one has to be especially careful in China, especially more recently. Uh, they have felt the heat from the government uh, with respect to speaking about religion. And so sometimes my host... A professor will kind of remind me before I give a talk that, you know, please be careful, you know, don't, know nothing about God, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, but for example, the last time I was in Beijing, I was invited to give a talk in one class. Um, These were uh students some of them were sanskrit students actually wow and i was invited to give a talk on the ramayana and at first i thought well how do i talk about the ramayana without you know rama is (laughs) the supreme personality of god how do you do that um but as we say, the Lord inspires you in the heart. So I just talked about Dharma, and that was no problem. Um, it was perfectly all right to talk about Dharma. Uh, they have similar ideas in uh, traditional Chinese, in, in Confucian tradition and so on. Right. Um, so everything went that way. Uh, what I found is that in each uh, particular class event where I'm asked to speak, I have to I have to be creative in different ways uh, to to do something that fits that can also bring in something of our tradition. Um, but what I found is that it's really possible to do. Um, and I'm sad to say now with world politics the way it is and with pandemic and what all, I don't know when I'll be able to go back uh, to China, but I I look forward because uh, things were just, kind of opening up, I felt like I was making some headway and making, you know, networking, connecting, and uh, things were leading somewhere. And also, I've been fortunate to have two uh, books translated, two of my writings translated into um, Mandarin and published uh, legally with academic press in china wow going through the going through the whole process of censorship and still uh, being permitted to print so we have i have books we also have Srila Prabhupada's books in china um also some of them legally printed that's amazing that's a whole nother subject yeah. Uh where were we? <laughs> as far
1: as um I wanted to talk now about um sannyas because after so many years of being a brahmachari and and uh even a diksha guru since you said 1987, what inspired you to take up the sannyas ashram?
0: Mm. Um <clears throat> Well, we can go back maybe to 1988. Um, Mind you, by this time I'm already having the stamp of being a guru. 1988, I was in Vrindavan. Um, His Holiness Tamal Krishna Goswami was there. And um, I was having some exchange with him and I was getting to know him. He was getting to know me. And one day he looked at me and he said, hey, how come you're not a sannyasi? (laughs) And I didn't say anything. And then he just kind of answered his own question. He said, anyway, it's not necessary. Narada Muni was also not a sannyasi. The four kumaras were also not sannyasi. It's okay. And he let me off the hook. He didn't pursue it further, Um, and I felt at that time, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not qualified. And uh, over the years, watching ISKCON's record of sannyasis keeping their vows, I thought, I don't want to become part of those statistics. And so I thought, let me bide my time and uh, see what Krishna wants. And then, um, nothing dramatic, I would just say, in, yeah, it must have been 2013. um, It was uh, a series, I would say, of two, three, four small events of Uh, speaking with certain devotees and question coming up again, why you're not a sannyasi, Um, and a couple of other things. I started thinking, gosh, maybe now is the time to explore, uh, you know, making the process, because by this time there was a whole process to become approved. Uh, So... I thought, okay, first thing is get blessings of other sannyasis, my godbrothers, senior sannyasis. And uh, we had in Serbia a summer camp where I believe altogether seven sannyasis assembled. Um, And I just went from one to the next to the next and um, presented my case and uh, asked for their advice and their blessings, and one after another, they gave, gave the blessings. So I thought, okay, so let's, let's proceed. And uh, I guess one, uh, I think it was nicely expressed uh, by uh, His Holiness Bhakti Vaibhava Swami Maharaj. Um, he was one of the sannyasis who was there, and he's on the sannyas committee. And uh, I said, you know, I'm thinking of taking sannyas. He said, of course you have to take sannyas. He said, you're not a student anymore, you're a teacher. Right. Uh, the sannyas is the order for teachers, and you're a teacher. So... So just do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And did you have to wait that, that, I mean, there's certain like hoops, hoops, so to say that you have to jump through to and now in ISKCON to take sannyas. So did you have to do those same ones or was <laughs> it kind of like an expedited, I would assume it was kind of like a little bit more different for you for being a Prabhupada disciple, long standing brahmachari, et cetera.
0: Um, initially, I was told uh, that um, there is a standard uh, that we uh, go on the list on the waiting list for a two-year period minimum. Uh, it should be that; otherwise, everyone wants immediate. And I said okay, uh, but meanwhile, uh, some of the some of the senior devotees. Um, sannyasis were saying, no, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't have to wait. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, anyway, as it happened, uh, yeah, when I was uh, called on the carpet, in the positive sense, uh, to the sannyas committee in Mayapur, um, after I'd made the initial... uh, application and so on. Um, they they look they said so uh, we are we are proposing that you uh, take sannyas immediately what do you think and I said well um what to say i'm <laughs> i want to serve the Vaishnavas. I want to serve the Vaishnavas. so if that's the thing to do then okay. And uh, they said, mm, okay, it has to be approved by the GBC with a, um, I think it's 70, 78% vote or whatever. <laughs> and then uh, the next day I was informed that they had approved, that it was, yeah, it was a unanimous vote in favor. Um, But there's an interesting twist, in a sense, to my actual sannyas initiation. My sannyas guru is His Holiness Satchinandana Swami. And um, I requested that we we wait some months uh, for a sort of favorable uh, condition, namely to have the event in Janmashtami. Uh, This would have been 2014 in Germany, um, in Golokadam, Germany, Uh, because one reason was, uh, as I said, having disciples, they wanted to be present at this event and to ask them to come to Mayapur, that was too much. Uh, And so we arranged like that. But there was a problem. And the problem was that just a few days before uh, Janmashtami, 2014, uh, Sachinandan Swami took very seriously ill. And he was in Berlin and he had strict orders from his guru, his guru, from his doctor, not to travel. Right. And um, I kind of thought this doesn't sound very auspicious. Um, <laughs> so what we did, though, uh, was kind of fun actually. Was that His Holiness Chandra Swami happened to be there uh, in Golokadam for the festival. So he became a ritvik sannyas guru.
1: <laughs> right. In the true sense of the
0: term. In the true sense of the term. And then later in the afternoon that day, uh, we had Satchinanda Swami on screen, you know, um, sort of live on screen, and he spoke very nicely. And then, uh, so that was in, what, August or September. Then, uh a few months later, it must have been January, maybe December, in Mayapur. I was in Mayapur. And I really did not know that Swami would be coming there, but someone mentioned or announced that he was there. Um, And so so then I took my danda, And I went to the flat where he was staying and I knocked on his door and he opened and holding the danda like this, I said, Maharaj, could you please give me this danda? (laughs) 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 And he was, was, you know, beaming. He said, oh, yes, please come in. And then just the two of us, we made a nice little ceremony together. Wonderful. Um, wow. Overlooking the Ganga.
1: Right. Maharaj, before we go <laughs> into um, your book uh, about cow care and Hindu animal ethics, um, did you want to take a break Yes. Now?
0: Yes, maybe let's take a short break. Okay. And then another thing is, I don't know if this is gonna be a, worth wasting time, but um, so far, I'm getting your audio out of my computer when I would want to have gotten it in my earphones because we're recording here. But we'll see. I'll be right back. Okay, sure.
1: Okay, Maharaj will be right back. In the meantime, I want to show you his website. Uh, So for those of you watching... So this is uh, Maharaj's uh, website, KennethValpay.com. For those of you listening, actually, let me put it on the screen here. Uh, K-E-N-N-E-T-H-V-A-L-P-E-Y.com. And so this is Maharaj's website where it shows all of his different uh, projects, um, how you can get in touch with him, uh, press reviews, reviews, different projects we're going to talk about this here this is very fascinating how he not just went to oxford uh hindu studies but also was changed over like he said to um the oxford study for animal ethics as well it's very fascinating this book he just recently i believe so recently published this book um macmillan uh animal ethics series And so it also shows here all these different books, publications that he has. Very academically qualified um, and scholarly. This is the one he was talking about earlier, Attending Krishna's Image, Chaitanya Vaishnava, Murti Seva's Devotional Truth. Very fascinating. I'd love to read that. Also, you can see different links here. Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. Uh, here we are. Oxford Center for Animal Ethics and the Bhagavat Purana OCHS Project. So, if you want to go check that out, I'll put that in the comments. Um, Kennethvalpy dot com. So this is like the um, academic part of the of the website, I'm just showing your website while you were gone. Sure.
0: Okay. All right. Um, people might want... also want to see. People might also want to see the website of the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. Right. Um. Which has lots of things going on.
1: Is that over here? I think. This one here. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk a little, Maharaj, about how um, you went from Oxford Centre of Hindu Studies to the to be also involved with the animal ethics part, and then we can go into the book.
0: Uh, yes. So uh, the I've been involved uh, with the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. Almost since its beginning. Uh, It started, I think it started in 1998. I came to Oxford in 1999. And um, through the years there of completing two degrees, then uh, I was uh, a doctoral research fellow.
1: We lost you there, Maharaj.
0: Research fellow. And there are quite a good number of research fellows. Uh, you can see in the website, they're all listed and described what they all do. Um, and, yeah, what, one day a note came from the director of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. There's a few centers that do various specialty things in Oxford that are not directly affiliated with the university, um, but they are academic centers uh, of research and so on. And there came a note saying, um, would there be anyone in your center who could come and give us a talk about um, Hinduism and animal ethics for a conference that we're organizing. So that note got passed around the office (laughs) and sort of ended up on my desk. And I thought, actually, that's kind of interesting. Let me explore this. And so I ended up giving the talk, and then that talk uh, eventually led to another one and another one. And uh, and it led to an invitation from the director to write a book on the subject for, uh, because he is the editor-in-chief of a book series that's published um, by Palgrave Macmillan on animal ethics. So he wanted a book on Hinduism and animal ethics. And initially, I wasn't really jumping at the idea. But he asked me to once, he asked me a second time, he asked me a third time, And this is over a two- or three-year period. And the third time he asked me, he said, you know, I really want you to write this book because you're a practitioner. And when he said that, I felt like this is exactly why I did all of this. This is why I have, you know, gone through eight years of full-time study and, you know, done all the <laughs> all the Sika <CICA> pulling <laughs> <laughs> uh, and passing the exams and on and on and on, writing the papers. This is why I've done all this, because I wanted to do uh, something like this. And now I'm being given this opportunity on a, on a silver platter. Yeah. But I thought, yeah, um, Hindu, you know, am I interested in Hinduism? Not really. (laughs) Uh, But there is something that is very concerning for Hindus. And it's also concerning for uh, my tradition, the Vaishnava tradition, Gauriya Vaishnava, especially particular, namely cows. And I don't feel like it's been seriously treated um, from the side of practitioners. Serious means, you know, many books, many things have been written, and they're serious in the sense that they have sincere dedication and uh, many qualifications, but nothing that would sort of hold water. In a in an at- academic context,
1: when you mean they, it hasn't been taken seriously by practitioners, what do you mean
0: exactly? There, I mean um, not 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 taken seriously by practitioners, but not up to the standard. Okay, a, a practitioner might write a book about the importance of cow protection and it might make lots of um, very good points, but it won't be in the right format. It won't have the right sort of referencing that would be required of a proper academic book. And so it won't be taken seriously by anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe This is what I should try to do. And so I asked uh, the director of the center, what if I focus just on cows? And he said, yeah, great, go for it. So that's what I did.
1: And what is the main, I guess, what is the main idea or main thesis of the book, if you could kind of summarize that?
0: Uh, The thesis of the book is that there is a tradition that says that cows among the many kinds of animals are in some sense special. How are they special is one of the purposes of the book uh, to explain. Um, Since when have they been special is also one of the, uh, in the first chapter I'm going through discussing Rigveda Upanishads Mahabharata and so on um, and why are, why are cows uh, special in religious terms so then we introduce Krishna and the Bhagavatam And to say that um, taking all the different considerations, together, uh, may be helpful to appreciate, to help us uh, to counter the direction that's been gone in the modern world in terms of the slaughtering of animals in general, and cows specifically. And uh, there is a, because cows are uh, considered special, they are given special treatment, uh, especially in the form of goshalas, sanctuaries. In India, there are thousands of such sanctuaries. But how are these functioning, and um, how realistic is it? Uh, to are are these are these goshalas really models? For how the rest of the world should be practicing cow protection, and uh, I highlight a handful of mm, cow protection programs, including ISCON and others, uh, to give a give some of the specifics of what. It's all about, and what are the challenges? And to raise the question how might a uh, really positive future uh, for cows be accomplished? Considering that there are good enough reasons uh, to make a significant shift in our understanding of how we humans relate. Uh, with uh, the animal world in general you know one can go on and on about how we are destroying uh, the biosphere and that this book is uh, is a start it's a humble start in that direction and I also wrote it with the hope that you um, that Vaishnavas would read it to think more carefully and more deeply about our tradition and what might be needed uh, to to do much more than what we are doing uh, with respect to cow protection. If we look at ISKCON today, uh, the A recent survey has uh, counted approximately 5,000 cows uh, in all of the in the aggregate of ISCON projects. 4,000 of which are in India, and the rest spread around uh, in Europe and America, and uh, not many elsewhere. That's not
1: a huge number.
0: It's not because if you consider that it's estimated that thirty-four thousand cows per hour are being slaughtered in the on the planet. Wow, it's not very much um, now. But numbers is one thing. Um, numbers is one thing but it it's never going to be the case uh, that we're going to get you know huge numbers of cows there are uh, there there are goshala projects in India and there's one in Brajo where they have maybe 40,000 cows there's another in southwest Rajasthan when i was there it was around 45,000 they said um, at one time they had over over a hundred thousand. Um, but you know that's that's India, India. It's much easier to do uh, than in the West uh, for many reasons. But I just wanted to raise the issue and say, well, we have actually a very strong mandate from our founder, Acharya. If one goes through all the statements Prabhupada made, they're very strong and very clear that he wanted us to establish farm communities with uh, cows and grains. And um, he wanted every city temple to have a complementary country farm community and so on um so we have we have a lot to do to get there
1: what would you say what would you say in india makes it easier because i would think in america for example like i i could just you know go get a few acres of land and i would be able to have some cows like for, for my own personal use so to say what makes it i guess I guess, is it the amount of cows that's easier or is it like, what is it, what is it about easier?
0: One thing that's easier is that you can hire helpers in India at much, much lower uh, salaries. Right, right. And if you're going to take care of your cows personally, um, that's fine but how many cows can you actually care for? And what do you do when you're getting a bit older? Um, Are your children going to also take care of the cows? And what happens when a cow gets sick? And uh, can you actually feed the cow all the year round uh, with the land you have? Uh, in Nuvrajadam in Hungary, they have a very nicely developed program of uh, working towards self-sufficiency uh, and uh, sustainability, and it's it's a major concern of theirs. And they make very careful um, accounting. And calculation. And when I was last there, uh, they uh, I was told they have many different departments. They're very well organized, and their cow protection um, uh, department had the highest percentage of uh, self sufficiency at fifty percent. And uh, the project as a whole, they calculated, was around 33%. Uh, however, they also said that if necessary, if the, if the uh, you know, world economy collapses tomorrow, he said we can be 100% self-sufficient if we need to be. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh,
1: But there's, you know, there there are
0: many considerations. I'm just, I started reading about uh, farming and what's involved. Um, Hmm. There's a lot of literature on it. Uh, One needs to really, there's so much to understand. In America, there are a lot of challenges to maintaining a small farm, not least of which the taxing situation. Uh, just to cover uh, the the cost of um, you know paying the taxes for your land, uh, and it turns everyone to doing commodity growing, and um, it it's just uh, very difficult. Also, dairy farming is very difficult in America. Uh, the regulations for dairy farming are are so. Complex and uh, thorough. Uh, that you you basically have to. You have to be wealthy before you start.
1: <laughs> you know? it doesn't make any sense. And it's yeah. also
0: true of farming in general. To, you right. know, be successful.
1: What would you What would you say? Uh, could be advice to the ISKCON community right now in the way cow protection is going right now? Like, it's a wonderful thing. You know, devotees have farms and they protect the cows. But what would you say is the next step in that?
0: Mm. Um, A next step, I think, well, the the GBC is trying to take a next step in that they made, um, it's already two years ago, not not a resolution, but a recommendation, uh, that by Janmashtami 2022, that's coming up soon, all temples with deities should have a plan in place for how they are going to um, get what many devotees are calling ahimsa milk, uh, dairy for the deities, minimally for the deities, only from protected cows. Right. So I'm involved with the cow protection ministry here in Europe, and we're working on that, um, trying to understand what are the realities involved. Uh, and uh, it's it really is very much of a challenge. I personally feel that one step in that direction is to recognize that although it's nice to offer so much milk and dairy to Krishna, we may have to recognize that um, we need to offer less. And one reason for that is because we devotees just might be taking more milk than we should, right? Right. which is not healthy. It becomes, as you get older, actually (laughs) not so healthy to take too much milk. Prabhupada said, take one cup of milk a day. So that would be one thing. Um, Another thing I would like to see is um, something like for children in our communities, um, I'm calling it Kids for Cows, and I'm just thinking I, 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 there are others who would be much more qualified uh, to think of ways of involving children, thinking about, and of course, visiting the farms. and. Just getting cow conscious, start them early and start them thinking how come we don't have, how do we, how, why do we not have cows? Why do we not have farm? Why are we buying everything from the store uh, when it could be cut off in no time from the store? Yeah. Um, and an interesting, uh, little detail in this regard, we're we're quite accustomed, you know, all of us, to just go to the store to buy whatever we want to prepare and offer to Krishna. In the 1960s, when uh, the, when West Berlin was cut off, there was an attempt uh, by the Soviet Union to sort of strangle West Berlin and force it to become part of the Eastern Bloc. And then, uh, so the response of the West was to do what they called the airlift, the Berlin airlift. And for some weeks, they were delivering groceries and supplies uh, by airplane to West Berlin until uh, the Soviet Union backed off. Okay, okay, okay. But the point is that Hmm. the city, and I think this would apply to any city, had enough supplies for their residents for only three to four days. Okay, maybe that can be stretched to a week. Um, But, you know, we're we're living, (laughs) we're kind of living on the edge. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and we have a we have a monetary system that uh, seems like it colla- could collapse uh, anytime, and on and on. Right, so Prabhupada was really talking a lot about this. Come on, get yourself, get real, get get land, um, and uh, grow your own.
1: Yeah. That's that's really something that interests me because I always fear that, you know, something could some something could happen and it, like you said can cut off the food supply or the uh, monetary, you know, it can can all collapse as well and how, what do we do during that time? Right. It's like the dependency on modern um, you know, the way things are industry and things are are, are it's it's scary how how dependent we are on that.
0: Yeah, we're utterly, we're so dependent on the, and it, it goes back, the whole economy is running on fossil fuel. But for how long?
1: For how long, yeah. It's time to get more serious about uh, far, uh, farms and cow protection is it our cow like you know the the when we talk about self-sufficiency are cows a really big part of that or can self-sufficiency be without
0: cows perhaps it's an interesting question i think it depends on so many factors um going back to Prabhupada, he always kind of Brought these two together. You need cows, and you need grain. You need milk, and you need grains. He always, he always put those together. Uh, there was a very uh, <laughs> striking and, in, in ways, humorous uh, little video that was made some years ago by devotees in New Vrindavan uh, to make an argument against the vegans, who were saying, you know, no cows. Uh, they, they made this video uh, to sort of graphically demonstrate that if you don't have cows, that means you don't have bulls. If you don't have bulls or oxen, that means who's gonna um, plow the field to grow the grains to make your loaf of bread. So they had this one loaf of bread and they sort of slammed it on the table and said, this loaf of bread, was the product of this field, and they pointed to this, you know, substantial size field um, of of wheat, of grain. So if you're going to grow that grain and you're not going to use fossil fuel, and you're not going to use um, oxen, and you're not gonna use horses, what are you gonna do? Well, here, here's your pick. And, you know, he, he he sort of holds out a a pick or a shovel or something, and he says, someone starts you know, hacking away at the earth. And it's like, forget it. You know, that's not gonna. It's not gonna happen. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> so, um, Maharaj, maybe we can talk a little bit about now your. What are your future plans as far as um, your different projects that you're you're working on?
0: Um, Because uh, this book on cows um, got a quite nice response, I should mention that it's available uh, in digital form for free download because it's available open access, uh, which means it's not when you download it from the publisher. Uh, It's not pirated. It's legal. So, I was able to get this uh, because I did the necessary uh, crowdfunding to make it possible. Because it was successful, it's been downloaded now. um, latest count was 46,000 copies downloaded uh, in two years. They've invited me. The editor of the series invited me to do a second book on animal ethics. Oh, wow! And
1: those so, those of you who want to download it, you can get it on Maharaj's website, which I showed earlier. There's a There's a co- There's a button here that says "Get a free PDF copy now."
0: Yeah. So. Um, so he invited me to write another book. He wanted something again, more general, kind of Hindu animal ethics. Um, but I want to avoid the word Hindu <laughs> uh, because, I mean, that's a whole nother subject. But um, <laughs> but I
1: mean, it's called the it's called the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, and this is kind of in connection with that, right? It's, yes.
0: Well, that's also another story. Uh, We started out the Oxford Center for uh, Vaishnava Studies. Oh, right, right. And then people were saying, what is Vaishnava? Well, it's kind of related to what many people call Hinduism. Oh, okay. All right, well, why don't you make it the Oxford Center for Vaishnava and Hindu Studies? So it was that for a while. And then it was, well, this Vaishnava, um, it's not Hindu because it's Vaishnava and Hindu studies. So, right. And then it's like, yes, no, maybe it's kind of this, kind of that. And uh, you get all tied up in explanations that go nowhere. Right. And so finally it was decided, okay, Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And within The Center for Hindu Studies. As you can see on the website, uh, we have research projects in Vaishnavism. We also have in Shaivism and Shaktism and other things. So, um, anyway, I still didn't really want to have the focus on Hindu. And so, what I'm working on now is a book on yoga and animal ethics. Oh, interesting. And the idea is to uh, take the framework of Ashtanga Yoga and kind of bring uh, each of those stages mm, with a focus uh, to reflections on human relations with animals and more, more deeply to reflect on what is a person. Because we want to raise this issue that, well, why animals? Uh, it's because animals are also persons. But what is a person? Mm. Uh, and so, so that's that's my present project. That'll take me. That'll keep me off the streets for a while. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Great. And. Uh,
0: Other than that, we have the Bhagavata Purana Research Project, which I think you mentioned. Yes. And that's a real lifetime sort of a thing. I mean, some will say, what do you mean, there's no necessity? Prabhupada said, there's no need of research, research is done. Yes, uh, what we need is research to show that the research is done. Uh, What I mean by that is there's so much, there's a massive tradition of Bhagavata Purana culture in India throughout the subcontinent in all of the languages. Uh, There are um, translations, there are transcreations, of the bhagavatam or portions of the bhagavatam in different languages there's um, uh, performing arts there's graphic arts there are so many different areas and there's so much that can be done in terms of connecting the Bhagavatam to other vedic and post-vedic literature So one of the things that we want to do is um, we we have we have someone who's qualified to do this. We just need to do some fundraising. Is to create a Bhagavata Purana wiki, and um, this will this will be like a you know a reference resource, uh, which itself can expand and expand and expand in so many different directions uh, and we want to want to get started on that we're also I'm mm, we're starting to make a course the Oxford Center for Hindu studies has um, adult education courses continuing education courses and we want to do Radhika Raman Prabhu and I Want to do a course on the Bhagavata for that purpose, and I'm also supposed to do a course on cows and Hinduism for that continuing education. Wow, wonderful!
1: Well, Maraj, it was a very fascinating conversation. Understanding <laughs> your your history and what you've been working on, and and just the amount of service you've done for the different communities, academic, Krishna conscious, ISKCON. uh, It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for for joining me.
0: The pleasure is all mine. And again, I so much appreciate what you're doing, Namrasa Prabhu, with uh, bringing, you're you're bringing uh, Vaishnava community together in uh, ways which wouldn't happen otherwise. And uh, I think it's part of, Srila Prabhupada spoke a lot about what he called the Hare Krishna movement. Right. And um, if I can get on my soapbox for one more minute. Sure. uh, (laughs) I think there's a a distinction that needs to be recognized. We have an institution, which is a wonderful institution in many ways, that Prabhupada founded, International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And uh, very much as a consequence of uh, the efforts of this institution, but now since a couple of decades or more, uh, there are other institutions and there are informal communities of devotees around the world. online communities and so on and and physical. And I think we just need to recognize that there's um, a Krishna consciousness movement of which um, the institution that we may belong to uh, is a part. And not to try to claim uh, that the institution is the movement. So I I just feel that your um, what you're doing is fostering that understanding, and I think that's very valuable. Thank helped. you so much.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for saying that. As a senior member of ISCON, for you to say that is is very um, hope giving and also uh, very encouraging. Because you, you know you're right. Within you know ISCON is an institution. Uh, amongst like other uh, institutions that have come out you said in the past few decades and uh it's part of the same chaitanya tree and to unify us and to kind of you know we're all in we're all doing this together we're actually a very small amount of people when it comes to (laughs) this so we should try to work together a little bit more but yeah appreciate that very much thank you so much thank you Maharaj, please stay on. Um, and if again, if for our listeners, if you want to get in touch with Maharaj, you can you can get in touch with him via um, his website, kennathvalpay.com. It's there up on the screen. I also posted uh it earlier. And uh yeah, thank you everyone for joining. Thank you everyone for listening. Please share and subscribe. Maharaj, please stay on a minute longer while I turn off the recording. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare.